Good morning to you. Uh, my name is Matt Luloyan. Uh, if we have not met before, um, I get the privilege of serving as the pastor of, of Liberty Church here in Harrisburg. Uh, if you're newer with us, too, we, we are part of a family, a, a network of churches, um, several actually. We're part of a, a network called Redeemer City to City, which is a, a global network of church plants that started uh, back in New York City some years back. We're also part of a network called the Acts 29 Network. Uh, which is another global network of, of churches that really seek to equip people uh, with the good news of Jesus to live uh, as missionaries live in the world. Um, and we are also part of a, a smaller family of churches called the Liberty Church Network, uh, most of which are in Philadelphia or the region uh, near there. So we are kind of the westernmost front of, um, of the Liberty Church Network. We're grateful for the work that God has done here in our midst over the last four or so years that we've been a, a church family and, and just excited for the days uh, to come in that as well. If you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 17 uh, today. So um, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, it's going to be on page 903 and you can start uh, making your way there. And as you're making your way there, I just want to talk for a, a moment this morning uh, about names. Right? Names uh, mean something. Names matter. Uh, all of us have a name, multiple names, uh, first and middle name and last name for most of us, and maiden names for some of you and other kinds of names. These are part of our identity. And when, uh, when our parents named each of us, uh, very oftentimes there's a deep meaning behind that. There's deep significance in what we are named. Uh, and if we, in our relationships and conversations with others, if we forget someone's name, uh, if you've ever had the unfortunate instance of that happening to you that happens to me on a fairly regular basis. Uh, or if you call someone by the wrong name, which I've also done many times, um, that communicates something, does it not? It communicates something. I have a, a very weird last name. Uh, my last name is Lou Loyan, and it gets mispronounced all the time. It's, it's, it's maybe in your, written in your bulletin or not, I don't even know. Um, it gets mispronounced all the time. My working theory on that is that the English-speaking brain doesn't really have a category for so many vowels in such a condensed space. And so kind of in desperation, it, it kind of clings for, or search, searches for some kind of consonant. And people add extra L's all the time, or they add weird consonants like Z's or G's. It's the, the range of mispronunciations of my last name is, is broad. Uh, it is helpful to figure out when it's a telemarketer on the other end of the line. But I, I've gotten used to that. I've, I've had this last name for, for 31 years. Uh, I've gotten used to it. It does not uh, affect me when it's mispronounced all the time. Uh, but I really do appreciate uh, what an author named Frederick Beekner says about names and about their meaning and significance. Um, his last name is spelled B-E-U-C-H-N-E-R. So as you might imagine, it gets mispronounced all of the time. Uh, and he wrote in one of his books, he wrote this about his name. It says, it is my name. It is pronounced Beekner. If somebody mispronounces it in some foolish way, I have the feeling that what's foolish is me. If somebody forgets it, I feel that it is I who am forgotten. There's something about it that embarrasses me, just in the same way there's something about me that embarrasses me. I can't imagine myself with any other name, Held, say, or Merrill, or Plavacek. If my, last name, or if, my, if my name were different, I would be different. And when I tell you my name, I have given you a hold over me that you didn't have before. If you call it out, I stop, look, and listen whether I want to or not. And we're in our, uh, in our second week in this series in the Apostles' Creed. And the Creed is this succinct statement about what Christians believe. 
And in this first line of the creed, as it affirms our belief, it speaks of God as the Father Almighty. And though we might gloss over that, and particularly for those of us who are familiar with the creed and who are here at Liberty, and and we say this every week for a lot of the calendar year, though we might gloss over it, that name of God, that God is the Father Almighty, that is the basis for all of our trust in him. And the creed is all about belief. It's about trust. We talked a lot about that last week. Well, this is what makes that trust possible. That we don't just have a, a collection of truths, but we have a relational God who invites us to know him. And this is a beautiful reality about the Christian faith. We don't just have a premise. We don't just trust a premise or a creed full of premises. As Christians, we trust a person. The name Father Almighty brings together two huge aspects of God's nature and God's identity. Um, For one, God is the Almighty And if we go all the way back to the book of Exodus, when Moses is in the wilderness, he has this encounter with God where God calls him to go back to Egypt to be the one who leads uh, the Israelites who are in slavery in Egypt out of slavery and into the promised land. And Moses asks God, well, if the people in Israel, if the Israelites in Egypt ask me who sent me, what is the name of the God that sent me to do this, what should I tell them? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. This is that sacred uh, name of God, Yahweh, or I am who I am. And it points to this complete otherness of God and the holiness of God. It it helps us perceive something of the fact that God is self-existent, that he's not dependent on anyone else or anything else. It helps us grasp that he's, um, he's eternal, as much as we might be able to start to grasp that, that he's perfect and complete. He's not in the process of becoming something different. And all of that testifies to the almightiness of God, the power of God as the one who has always been, the one who will always be. But the creed doesn't just say, I believe in God Almighty. It could say that. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And that helps us to see that God is immensely personal. So much so that he reveals himself over and over again in both the Old and New Testaments as Father And we'll see in the passage that we're looking at today that that there's more than one relationship that that refers to. God as Father actually refers to three different relationships, which is really good news not only for you and me, but it's actually good news for the world. So follow along with me as I read here from John 17. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, uh, and then I'll pray for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed." I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, our Father Almighty, make us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth. And teach us this morning through your word, for you are the God of our salvation. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. So when the scripture speaks about God as Father, there are really three different relationships that that might refer to. Um, This passage refers primarily to two of them, although there are going to be hints and traces of all three uh, in this text. So those three relationships are these. God's relationship with humanity, what we might call the universal fatherhood of God. There's God's relationship with Jesus, what we might call Trinitarian fatherhood of God. And there's God's relationship with his redeemed people, what we might call the saving fatherhood of God. And we'll spend the rest of our time just working through um, each of those. So first, let's talk about God's relationship with all of humanity. Sometimes when scripture speaks of God as father, it's a reference to God as the creator of all human beings. The prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 puts it this way, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And this is what we might refer to as the universal fatherhood of God. Um, Next week, we'll actually spend the entire time talking about this second statement in the creed where God is the creator of heaven and earth. But just for this morning, it's important for us to see that as the one who has created human beings in his own image, God is the father of all humanity. And the Apostle Paul speaks of exactly the same thing in Acts chapter 17. Uh, He's in Athens. He's speaking to a, a group of learned people. And he quotes one of their own poets and agrees with one of their own poets who says, we are all indeed his offspring. We are the offspring of God. This affirmation of the universal fatherhood of God, when the Apostles' Creed came into existence in the second century, it really served to draw a line in the sand between what Christians believe and a widespread heresy that was present in the early church called Gnostic dualism. Uh, Gnostic dualism, which, is, which was especially present in Greek thought uh, and Greek culture, that drew a uh, Gnostic dualism drew a huge distinction between the physical and material world and the spiritual world. And according to that view, the physical and material aspects of life were irreversibly corrupted. They were a prison to be escaped. While the spiritual, on the other hand, was where real life was to be found. That dualistic view of the world was actually rooted in a faulty view of God. Um, So Gnostic dualists actually believed that there were two different gods. Um, There was one God who created the world, but he actually did a really terrible job, according to them. He failed miserably at creating the world, and hence, all of the physical material world was corrupted, including and especially the human body. But there was then a second wise God who was all spirit, and who offered redemption by escaping the physical and material world and living in all spiritual existence. Then the Bible and the creed, by contrast, speak of of one God who is Father of all. And so when we affirm in the creed that God is the Father Almighty, that's an explicit rejection of Gnostic dualism. Because if this one God has created everything, 
If this father of all has created human beings and he's created them both as spiritual and physical beings who bear his image, and not only has he created them in his image, but he called them not just good, but very good, that means that we can't pit the spiritual against the physical. We can't pit them against one another. Uh, It means that any of the corruption and fracture that exists in the world because of sin, whether that be physical fracture and corruption or spiritual fracture and corruption, it means that's not irreversible. And it means it doesn't require a second God to come and undo the work of the first, but rather the Father Almighty himself to redeem and restore creation to its original goodness. Um, One of the huge distinctives of the Christian faith that, that separates it from other worldviews and other religions and other outlooks on life is the idea that in the Christian faith, salvation is not escape from the physical world. It's the complete restoration and reconciliation of it. Us as human beings, but all that God has created as well. Now, the implications, as you might imagine, of, of God as the, the universal father, they're huge and far-reaching implications. Uh, for one, and we talk about this a lot, particularly when we talk about uh, ministries of mercy and why we serve people and why we care about people uh, in our world. But one of the huge implications is that we affirm the dignity and worth of all people because they bear God's image. And it means that we seek to, the way, in the way we treat people and speak to people, we seek to bestow value and worth on them in light of that. At the same time, this will lead us to incredibly unpopular convictions in the midst of current cultural shifts and conversations. And I want to throw one out there to you this morning, just so you have an idea of where this affirmation that we make in the creed about the Father Almighty actually um, comes into play in our world on a daily basis for us, has implications in our day-to-day life and in our culture. So, for example, gender identity and gender dysphoria. It's a huge topic for us in this cultural moment. And at the core of these conversations, at the core of these discussions about uh, transgender and gender dysphoria, gender identity, is this idea, this argument, that who I am on the inside, who I am for real on the inside, doesn't match up with who I am on the outside. So biologically, I'm male, but on the inside, I'm female, or, or vice versa. Biologically, I'm female, but on the inside, I'm male. Or even like a ruling that just happened this past week in Oregon where um, a court declared that this particular individual did not have to be classified uh, as, a, as either or. They didn't have to have a, a binary gender classification. Now this is a, a huge complex issue uh, and it involves, this is important, if we're going to talk about the fatherhood of God, it means that we are talking about created image bearers of God. And so we need to bestow worth and value on all people and not ever... Um, downplay the struggle or the pain or the trauma that it is for people who experience gender dysphoria. And it, and it means for us that we need to figure out how to come alongside people and love them well and care for them well. But what I also want us to see is that the main argument in these conversations pits the biological against the spiritual. It pits the biological and the physical world against the spiritual, the internal longings and desires. And so really I think that this is a reprisal of the Gnostic dualistic worldview that that Scripture and the Apostles' Creed was specifically opposing. And I'm talking here specifically about the view itself, not how we treat people. So I'm I'm trusting that you're going to hear the distinction that I'm making there. But for dualistic Greeks 2,000 years ago, salvation was escape from the body. For us today, a transgender individual's salvation might be when a man trapped in a woman's body 
uh, or a woman trapped in a man's body is set free from the biological, physical constraints on the, and the outside is then made to match the inside. So, again, how we handle these conversations is incredibly important, but what I want us to see is that to agree, just to, just to accept and buy into the, the common cultural argument that exists, is to suggest, um, just like the Gnostic dualists did, that the God who created us failed miserably, and that we need another, better God of some making to save us. Whereas in contrast, Christians would say that there is one God, the Father Almighty. He is the one who redeems and who restores. It's the universal fatherhood of God, the relationship of God with all of humanity. Second, let's talk about God's relationship with Jesus. Uh, We have in our church several um, professional counselors, some licensed professional counselors. Um, We also, just when we're in relationships with one another, even if we're not professional counselors, we try to uh, offer wise and good counsel to each other. So for all of you professional and amateur counselors in the room, uh, what might you say, what might you think about a 30-year-old man who said something like this? I don't do anything unless my dad tells me to do it. I only say what my dad tells me to say. What might you say about a 30-year-old man who said something like that? You might, uh, there's an author named Paul Miller who uses this scenario in seminars that he, that he teaches. And the responses are often something like what you might be thinking when you hear that. Like, this guy needs some separation from his dad. Like, that is not healthy. That's, that's codependent. That guy needs to get his own life. He's 30 years old. He's a grown man. He should do his own thing. But then Paul Miller, as he kind of gathers responses from people, then he reads John chapter 5 where Jesus says, Truly the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. He says, I can do nothing on my own. I can do nothing on my own. Beyond God being the Father of all created humanity, God is also the Father of Jesus. And that relationship is really evident in this text really throughout all four of the Gospels. What we learn is that within the mystery of the Trinity, uh, this one God eternally existent in three persons, there's a a familial relationship um, where God the Father Almighty is the Father, is the Dad of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And when we affirm the creed, we're affirming our belief in in that as well. But to think of a Father-Son relationship within the Trinity is really difficult for us because it's so different from what we know of Father-Son relationships in the human realm. All of us have human fathers. Some of us knew our fathers well. Some of us did not know our fathers at all. All of our fathers, whether we knew them or not, are broken and sinful men. And so some of us carry around a lot of baggage because of the relationships we've had with our dads. And understandably, then, we start to project that baggage onto our view of God as father. And so we can actually end up looking at Jesus' relationship with God and diagnosing that as unhealthy, when in reality, it's actually we who are unhealthy. It's our fathers, and it's us who are unhealthy. So we need this picture of of God as Jesus' father to really calibrate our gauge to to what a father is and what a father does. And we need to see God as Jesus' father, not so that we can emulate every specific aspect of that relationship. There are some key differences in human father-son relationships. But the value of this relationship between God the father and God the son is that it allows us to see in a real-life example how God is both the almighty sovereign ruler of all creation and immensely personal at the exact same time. 
So what actually characterizes this father-son relationship of God and Jesus? We see several things in John 17. There's mutual glory. We see that in John 17. The father glorifies the son. The son glorifies the father. They, they honor one another. They lift one another up. They exalt one another as worthy of praise. There's union or unity. The father and the son are one, Jesus says in verse 11. There's a union of being. There's a union of purpose. And yet, though there's mutual glory, though there's union, there's also a functional submission. There's a deference. There's a dependence. Jesus, as he says, uh, does only what the Father tells him to do. He accomplishes the work that the Father gives him to do. He faithfully gives his disciples, passes along to his disciples, the words that God the Father gave him. And all of that serves to, as Jesus says in verse 6, it all serves to make the Father known. Jesus, uh, as he comes into the world, as he embodies this father-son relationship here on earth, he makes the father known. So how do we come to know that God is father? How do we come to relate to God as father or call God father? Well, primarily it's through what we see in Jesus. Jesus relates to God that way. He calls God father. When he teaches his disciples to pray, he uses this really intimate relational word for father. He uses this word Abba rather than some distant, impersonal title that you might give to a sovereign ruler of a nation. So if we want to know what God is like as a father, the best place for you and I to look is at the kind of father he is to Jesus. And I want to say this carefully because I don't know where your mind exactly goes when you hear that. One of the tragic misconceptions that exists uh, in our understanding of who God is and who Jesus is today is that because God sends Jesus into the world to die, um, some will speak of God, the father, as a divine child abuser. Like, how could any kind of loving father send a son into the world to die on a cross? But what that misses is that this was the plan not only of God the Father in isolation, but God the Father and God the Son formed together in the shared glory that they had before the world began. And not once in Jesus' life and ministry, he talks a lot about his God about God as his Father. Not once in that does he ever perceive his Heavenly Father to be cruel to be abusive, to be manipulating him in some way. He's willfully doing the work that the Father has sent him to do. How does Jesus understand his relationship with God? According to Jesus, what kind of father is God? You can make a long list, but just a couple things. He's a perfectly loving father. If we kept reading in John 17 down to verse 24, um, God loved Jesus before the world began. He sent Jesus into the world not only because he loved the world, although that's definitely true, but also he sent Jesus in love for Jesus himself. God is an affirming father. So at Jesus' baptism, kind of his inauguration into ministry, the heavens open up after Jesus comes out of the water and God speaks over Jesus and said, This is my son, You're my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. And God is a faithful and covenant-keeping father. So Jesus is sent into the world, ultimately to his death, but as Jesus talks about in verse 11, he's going to return back to the father's side. So God the father is faithful to Jesus, not only as he delivers him up for death to rescue humanity, but also as he raises him up from the dead, and overpower sin and death themselves, welcomes Jesus back into glory. Okay, why does all of this matter? 
Why does all of this matter? What is it to you and me that God is Jesus' Father? It is everything to us. It is everything to us because you and I are invited to experience the exact same fatherly love that God has for Jesus. That's the kind of fatherly love that you and I are invited to experience. And so third, let's talk about God's relationship with his redeemed people. Not only is God the father of Jesus, not only is God the father of humanity in some generic sense, he's the father of an eternal family of adopted sons and daughters. He's the father of a redeemed people. And so that's what, that's what Jesus speaks about here when he talks about eternal life. And he says that eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus whom God sent. Or in verse 10 where he speaks about how all mine are yours and yours are mine. Or in verse 11, to keep them in your name which you have given me. So there are those who bear the family name. There are those who belong in God's family, the redeemed people of God. Jesus makes this even more clear a couple chapters later in John chapter 20. After rising from the dead, he tells his disciples, I'm now going to ascend to my father and your father. I'm going to ascend to my God and your God. He, he, he speaks of us as brothers and sisters in the same family. His God is our God. His Father is our Father. We are sons and daughters of the same God the Father. And this is a lot deeper and richer experience of God than just being created by him. Sometimes people will speak of uh, all of humanity being God's children. As we've seen, there's a sense in which that's true. This is something much deeper and richer than that. This is the saving fatherhood of God for those who trust him, who believe in him. As John already said earlier in his gospel, to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right, he gave them the privilege to become children of God. Or what John will say later on in his life as he pens a letter, 1 John chapter 3, which we heard together in the words of encouragement today. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the, the meaning of what we confess in the Apostles' Creed. And there's an author or theologian named J.I. Packer who I think sums this up well. He says this, When the Christian says, that the, says the first clause of the Creed, He will put all of this together and confess his creator as both the father of his savior and his own father through Christ, a father who now loves him no less than he loves his only begotten son. And that is a marvelous confession to be able to make. So have you ever stepped back and just considered that? Have you ever stepped back and just been uh, in awe that God the Father's love for you is the very same love that he has for Jesus. Love without a beginning, love without an end. Love that isn't corrupted by selfishness or by ulterior motives. Or maybe even most significant, love that is not constrained by the limits of our human love for one another. Think about the person that you love most in this world. Who do you love most in this world? What do you want for them? What do you want for them? What do you hope for them? Parents, in your best, clearest thinking moments, when you're filled with deep love and affection for your kids, what do you want for them? I want such good things for my little girls. I I want them to experience love. 
I want them never to know a day that they are not loved and never even to struggle with that at all. I want them to know a deep joy that can't be taken away from them. I want them to know safety. I want them to know security. I also know that in spite of all of my good hopes for them, my good intentions for them, I am unable to secure that for them. I know that I will in one way or another and probably in a multitude of ways, I will let them down. And that is the limit of even the best of my human love for them. And as much as all of us might appreciate good intentions, if they're only ever good intentions at the end of the day, what good is that ultimately? Right? What good would it do us if God has the best of intentions for us because he's our father and we're his children, but he lacks the ability to actually accomplish that? But see, here's the thing. God isn't just our father, is he? He is Jesus' holy father, as Jesus calls him in verse 11. He's the father almighty, like this name that we use for him in the creed. And in Jesus, through that relationship, God shows us that he not only loves his son with this incorruptible, unending love, he shows us that he will indeed accomplish all that he intends to do. He will leave no piece of his good intentions undone. Just like the psalmist says in Psalm 135, verse 6, all that God pleases, he does. Likewise, as we experience that exact same fatherly love of God, The almighty power and perfection of God means he will carry out every good intention that he has for us. And for you and I, as as sons and daughters in God's eternal family, those who believe experience every ounce of the genuine love that God longs to lavish on you just as he has always lavished it on Jesus. We connect this relationship, the way that God has loved Jesus, so he loves us when we are part of his family, and he is our Father. And God the Father has better intentions for you than the best of our human fathers do. And not only that, he has the the ability to make all of those intentions reality. So all that sin has corrupted and fractured in your life, and all that sin has corrupted and fractured in this world, God is restoring all of that through the work of Jesus. So only God has infinitely good intentions and also the unlimited ability to act upon them. And this is where we go back to what I said at the beginning. That's the basis for our trust in God. Why do we trust God? Well, only God has infinitely good intentions and the ability, the unlimited ability, to act upon them. So men and women, anchor your lives in this God. Anchor your lives in this God, our almighty Father. Lash yourselves to the mast of this name of God. Because the biggest doubts that we will have, the biggest lies that I personally am prone to believe about God, almost always come in relation to this. Like either God is a good father with good intentions and just unable to carry it out, or he's not really good. And he's doing exactly what he intends to do. It's just not good. Right? When, when cancer takes away somebody that you love, or when an accident leaves a child without a mom or a dad, Or when you set out thinking that you are following God's leading in your life, and perhaps you are, but you get there, and the circumstances around you just go up in flames, and you're left going like, what in the world is going on in my life right now? Or your marriage breaks down. Or your relationship with your parents breaks down. Or your relationship with your kids breaks down. Or your job disappears. Or that happens to people 
and you simultaneously combine those instances happening to people in one community, and you call that a church, and you try to do life together. Who will God be to you in that moment? What will possibly cause you to trust him then? And what I would say to you this morning, as someone who's experienced that in my own life, some of those things, and then also vicariously as a pastor, entrusted to care for people who go through exactly that all the time, there will be no satisfying answer to what God is doing in that moment. You will have no answer to go, I don't know, you just have to throw up your hands and go, I have no idea what God is doing. What we do have, what we do have is this name of God. This identity of God, this relationship with God, which he has given us and which gives us access to him not only as the creator of the cosmos, but as a father who invites us into his arms like a human father scoops up a little child. So will you trust him? Will you trust his name? Because like Frederick Buechner said, if his name were different, then he would be different and perhaps not trustworthy. But he is a good Father, he is the almighty God. His name is Father Almighty. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, our Father Almighty, would we thank you for the name, your name that you have given to us that we might call you by it, that we might call you our Father, that we might call you God Almighty, And that in that is the basis for our trust and our belief in you. Thank you that you are able to accomplish all that you intend to do. But thank you that you are uh, personal. And you invite us to know you, to be known by you. That you are a father to us. And that the same love that you have shown Jesus for all of eternity is the love that you invite us to experience. Jesus, thank you for your great work which accomplishes our salvation and invites us to actually taste of that same love. You invite us into this family. And we pray that as we come to this table, it would be just a tangible reminder that you have paid that cost so that we might enter the family of God, that we might call upon God as our almighty Father. Give us faith. Give us trust in you. When we have no other basis for it, when our circumstances are miserable and we're grasping for answers, give us trust in your name. Remind us that you are the Father almighty. Amen.